Well, we've been walking through Jacob's life uh, for the last several weeks as we've been walking through the bigger book of Genesis. And the whole time through Jacob's story, something's been bothering me, and I wonder if it has bothered you as well. I'll set it up for you here. Jacob is, on one hand, he's the chosen son of God, right? The, the father of Israel. And so everyone's supposed to look up to him, and he's supposed to be his father figure to us. Uh, not only that, but God has now appeared to him and made great promises to him. And so he is kind of the representative of the people of God at this point in the story. He's the good guy. And at the same time, have you noticed that in almost every story, he's actually the bad guy? Anybody else bothered by this? Right? He's the good guy in the story, and he's the bad guy in the story at the same time. Uh, here he is, the chosen son of God. And in one moment, he deceives and tempts his brother into selling the firstborn's inheritance to him for a pot of stew that turns out to just be lentil stew and isn't even that great. He's playing the tempter in that story. And as we walked through that, he was essentially the Satan figure in the story, the one tempting his brother, the one that we were to avoid. And then only a few verses later, he is tricking his father into giving the inheritance to him, the younger son, instead of giving the greater part of the inheritance to his older brother, as he intended to do, and by many accounts should have done. So here he is living by trickery, temptation, deception, and through all of these shenanigans, he's receiving the promises of God, and God is showing him great favor. And now he goes along in the story, and eventually it just starts to rub you the wrong way, and you just start to think, like, does God care about the way that Jacob acts? And if God doesn't care about the way that he acts, wait a minute, does he care about the way that, that I act? Do Christians just kind of get off free with no consequences for our ongoing sins? Is that how this is supposed to work? So if that tension has bothered you, and if you're wondering, okay, now that Jacob has encountered God, is he going to change or is he going to stay the same? Or if you're wondering, is all, are all the things he's ever done ever going to come back on him? Is it ever going to affect his life the way that he has acted? In other words, does God care what people do? This is the day, this is the story where we get an answer to that. That's bugged me along the way, and if it's bugged you as well, we're going to get a satisfying answer to that. The story continues on. Jacob has been sent away from his homeland back to his mother's homeland, and he's been sent there to find a wife. Uh, along the way, God appears to him. He, he receives great promises from God. He becomes, in a sense, a child of God in all of this, receiving his great promises. And now we're going to ask two questions. Does he change or is he still the same old rotten Jacob? And does God care what he has been doing the whole time? Here's the story. We'll read Genesis 30. I'm sorry, Genesis 29, the first 30 verses of it. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked. He saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The sheep were, the flocks of sheep, oh sorry, I missed a line there. The stone on the well's mouth was large. 
And when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, his daughter, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep, go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well and then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran to tell her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran out to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. And so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so. He completed her week and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. The words of the Lord. So this story, essentially what happens is Jacob's life of deception comes back to bite him. And what the Lord does through that is it helps us do two things. It helps us to take our own ongoing sin in our lives seriously. And it helps us to take God's hand of discipline in our lives seriously. Now, if we'll do that in our hearts, if we'll take our ongoing sin seriously, and we'll take God's discipline of his children seriously, 
that would produce the outward fruits of repentance from secret sins, repentance from sins that we haven't taken seriously in our past, and would make even here today a more holy, a more purified people before our God. That's what I pray the Lord does in us this morning, helps us take our own sin and God's discipline of us more seriously that might lead to the fruit of repentance for many of us who need it. So let me walk through the story first, and then we'll try to unpack some of the lessons that come from it. So again, what's happening here is Jacob's life of deception has caught up with him. You might even say the deceiver gets deceived, right? It all comes back around to bite him. He's been out in the desert recently. He had to flee from his home because his brother hates him now. His brother hates him because he deceived his father into giving him the inheritance instead of his brother as was due as the firstborn. So with his brother enraged against him, his father sends him out back into this land to find a wife, which is already kind of sounding like a story that we heard in the past in chapter 24. In chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant to the same land to find a wife for Isaac. And so since Genesis speaks in echoes, we start to look and say, okay, any similarities in these two go over to this land to find a wife stories? Well, Jacob gets to the land and the first thing he sees is a well, which is the first thing that Abraham's servant saw when he got to that land. The first thing he saw was a well. And so now we're really starting to see that there are lots of parallels here. Jacob arrives and begins to talk to the men who are there. They are all gathered around because once they're all there at the well and once all of their sheep are there, they can work together to move the stone off of the well and then water their flocks from the well. He gets there in the middle of this scene while they're waiting for the last shepherdess to come. That would be Rachel when she comes. And he shows up and you see in verse 4, he begins to ask them questions. He says to them in verse 4, My brothers, where do you come from? And then in verse 5, Do you know Laban, son of Nahor? And then is it well with him? So he's essentially just interrogating these guys. And you can almost read the irritation in their voice. Do you know Laban? They're like, yeah, we know him. And look, there's his daughter coming over. Why don't you go talk to her instead of us? Right? They're getting irritated because he keeps interrogating them. Here is a pattern in Jacob's life continuing. Up until this point in Jacob's life, everything he has said, except for when he talked to God, was calculated to get what he wanted. All right? You get his conversation with Esau, when he just says whatever he has to do to get Esau to sell him the birthright. You've got his deceptive conversation with his father Isaac, where he says whatever lie he has to say to get what he wants. All his relationships are built on getting what he wants out of the person he's talking to. Now he comes to this new land. He's there to find a wife, particularly from Laban's house. And so the first thing he does is, hey, where are you guys from? Hey, do you know Laban? Hey, is he well? Hey, how do I get to him? He's just using these people to get what he wants. A little echo there to say this is the same irritating I want to get what I want to get out of people guy that he has been in the past. So then he looks in verse 7, and he sees the stone there, and he goes from interrogating them to scolding them for not moving the stone. Look what he says in verse 7. 
Behold, it's still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. So here is this newcomer coming into the land, interrogating the people of the land, and then telling them how they should be doing their jobs. This is not the kind of guy that you want to come and visit you. And so they are irritated with him and they give him an explanation. In verse 9, while they're talking, Rachel appears. She has sheep. She's a shepherdess. And it says that as soon as he sees her, he musters up his strength and pushes that whole stone by himself. This stone that takes all of the shepherds together to move. He takes one look at this woman and he is inspired with this feat of strength in his body. Now that might sound familiar in chapter 24 in the same story with Abraham's servant going to find Isaac a wife. Uh, It's not the servant who does a mighty feat, but it's Rebecca, the woman who comes to the well. She waters for 10 camels and for this man, draws all that water up from the well. And it is this act of great hospitality that she performs here, welcoming them to the land. Jacob's act is very different though. It really is as simple as he sees a pretty girl and he says, all right, I got this, right? Right, this is Jacob. Not quite the noble hospitality effort that Rebecca had pulled in the previous story. We're learning more and more about Jacob. He is a man that is driven by the desire of his eyes. He pulls his greatest feats when he sees something great in front of him, like his father's inheritance or a pretty girl or whatever it is that he might want next. Jacob is driven by the desire of his eyes. The story goes on and uh, Laban begins to greet him, all sorts of fun stuff going on there, Uh, lots of little nuances and things in the story, but we'll fast forward ahead where Jacob is staying with Laban now. They stay together a month and he's probably already serving him. And Laban comes to him with what sounds like a really generous offer. Name your wages, right? You're staying here. I'm not paying you anything. I'd like to pay you. Tell me what you want and I'll pay it to you, right? That sounds like a very generous offer, but it's actually not because Laban knows exactly what Jacob wants. He saw the effort there at the well. Jacob came and told him all these things. He's watched him for a month and he knows that Jacob is motivated by his desire for Rachel. So he says, tell me, what do you want your wages to be? And Jacob says exactly what he wants. I'll serve you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your daughter, in marriage. In terms of ancient Near Eastern economics, that's a very high price. Like he's putting a premium on this. And Laban is coming out already on top and using this young man's desire against him. We're told that Laban has two daughters. One is named Leah and the other named Rachel. Leah is older. And it says that her eyes are tender or soft. And we have to admit that we don't know what that means. It's probably some ancient Near Eastern idiom that we don't know what it means today. Kind of like when we say, uh, you know, you're pulling somebody's leg. You're not literally pulling and there's not a literal leg going on. And if she has soft eyes, that meant something to them. And we don't know what it means to us. It could mean that she had trouble seeing and that her eyes were weak. 
It could mean that she had very beautiful eyes, and that was kind of her one beauty. She's got the one beauty in her eyes, and Rachel is just beautiful all over. But either way, the point is clear. The daughter that Jacob wants is Rachel. She's the one he's attracted to. She's the one that he wants to marry. And Leah sits there for now as the unloved one, the one that he does not want. So Laban tells him to name his wages. This goes on like this. And we see that he is the same old guy. He is looking out for what he wants and wording everything he says based on what he wants. This comes out most pointedly in verse 21. Let's look together at verse 21. The seven years go by. He serves Laban for seven years. They seem but a few days because of the love he has for her. And look how he words what he has to say at the end of it. Just Put this on a romantic Valentine's Day card for you. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Real, real classy, Jacob. Like, right? Well put, right? Here's a man who just wants what he wants and he says, give me what I want. Right? This is a guy who's driven by his desires. So, our first question is, is this the same Jacob or has he changed? And we get an answer in his words. He's the same guy. He speaks in short sentences to people. He is after whatever he wants, and he is just using anybody he can to get what he wants. But he's about to have all of that turned on him. So our second question is, does God care that Jacob is like this? Here he is, like, continues to bless Jacob and give him so much. And Jacob just continues with these antics. Is the Lord watching? Is he paying attention? And we start to get an answer to that as well. The time has come. The seven years are completed. It's wedding day. And so Laban throws a feast and all of the people of the land come. So everybody is there. It's this big week-long feast. And the way these things would work is that you would feast literally for the whole week and the bride and groom would be there together on the first day and the bride would be veiled so you couldn't tell what she looked like or anything about her then on the first night they would go into their own tent together and become their own home together Uh, but then the feast would continue for another six days except now the bride is unveiled and everybody can see their smiling faces and, and, and identify everybody so some point when this is going on it says in the evening Laban pulls his trick he switches out one sister for the other sister And now the sun sets, and it's dark, and you can't tell who is who. And then they go into the tent together, Jacob and the wrong sister. Now this is starting to sound a little bit like Jacob's deception of his father, right? The the, the light is dim, and so Jacob can't tell which sister is which, and so he mistakes the one he loves for the one that he doesn't love, right? Just like... His father Isaac, when his eyes were dim, Jacob came in and pretended to be Esau, and he even put goat's skin on his arm and said, here, touch my arm. Don't I feel like Esau, the son that you love? So Isaac, with his eyes dim, mistakes the son that he doesn't love for the son that he loves and is deceived into giving the inheritance to the wrong one. Now here we are, Jacob, in the dark, deceived into taking the sister he doesn't want instead of the sister that he does want. This is starting to sound a little eerie, isn't it? 
Well, this gets even better. In verses 25 and 26, we see Jacob's response here. He wakes up with the wrong sister, and he says to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then, here are the key words, why then have you deceived me? Just like his father Isaac had once said, Esau, your brother Jacob, came in and deceived me. Same words. And Laban's response to him shows just how ironic this thing is. Now, remember, the light was dim just as Isaac's eyes were dim. Isaac had mistaken one brother for the other brother, just like Jacob had mistaken one sister for the other sister. Both of them say, I was deceived. The first thing happened in Jacob's home country, and it elevated the younger above the firstborn. Now, look at what Laban has to say in verse 26. It is not so done in our country to put the younger before the firstborn. You guys see all the irony. Everything Jacob had done to his father is coming back upon him. And Laban seems to perhaps be aware of it. At the very least, this author, and certainly the sovereign Lord in heaven, is aware of just what is going on. So all of these connections that call back to the deception Jacob had done to his father when his eyes were dim, but now it is the light that is dim, and his father had mistaken one son for the other son, but now he mistakes one daughter for the other daughter. They both say, why do you deceive me? One happened in the home country, and, he, and Laban says to him, this doesn't happen in our, home, in our country here. Jacob's deception had put the younger before the firstborn, and Laban says, we don't do that. We don't put the younger before the firstborn. This is Jacob's lifestyle of deception coming back on his head. And the irony is sharp. The deceiver gets deceived. So does God care how Jacob has been living? Yes, the Lord does care how Jacob has been living. What's more, now that he has appeared to Jacob and given promises to him, now that Jacob is in, in earnest his son, now Jacob has a new, you might say, benefit in his life. The discipline of a loving father that will keep him holy for the rest of his life. So with all the divine irony that's going on in this story, with the way the Lord orchestrates what's happening in his life, when you see what's going on here is it is the Lord who is bringing back his deceptive lifestyle onto his head. And from that, we get two big lessons this morning. The first one is just the simple moral lesson. Don't live like Jacob lived, right? Don't live chasing the desire of your eyes and using deception to get it. That's not how Christians live. Live instead the way that Abraham's servant had lived in the story before this, living by wisdom and by prayer. This is the first lesson. The second one, and more pointed to what's going on here, is to take seriously ongoing sin in our lives now that we're children of God and to take seriously the discipline of God in our lives designed to make us more holy as fathers discipline their sons to give them virtue. So I'm going to take those one at a time for the rest of this morning. First, the, the moral lesson, 
and then we'll move on to the insight we get into God's discipline of us. So the first lesson we get from that story then is as God's people, we must not get by on desire and deception. Instead, we should get by on wisdom and on prayer. Uh, And again, this lesson comes from comparing Jacob's actions to the actions of Abraham's servant in chapter 24, which we didn't read today, where he lives based on wisdom and prayer. We can see this lesson more plainly in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. Why don't we turn there together? These are words that describe essentially just how Jacob is living. The sage here says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So essentially, this is the advice that Abraham's servant had taken. Living by prayer, living by wisdom, trusting in the Lord. Every step of the way, Abraham's servant stopped and prayed, God, would you give me help here? In contrast to Jacob, who just gets to the well and starts rocking and starts trying to use everybody for what he wants. Uh, The servant comes, and every time something goes his way, he stops and he looks to the Lord and says, God, you have shown steadfast love to your servant. He tells others how great the Lord has been to him. And Jacob does none of this. He just talks about what happened and does not acknowledge the Lord's hand in his life. So you have there a contrasting picture of a servant who in all his ways acknowledged the Lord and the Lord made straight his path back to Abraham. What does it look like instead to be wise in your own eyes and have your path made more crooked? Exactly what Jacob did, right? Living by pride, living by the desire of your eyes, placing no confidence in prayer, no confidence in wisdom, but just using and deceiving everyone to get what you want. These two characters show to us the lessons in Proverbs 3 here. So the point is, for God's people, We must not live by the desire of our eyes, and we must not live by deception. Instead, we live by wisdom and by prayer. That means something, as many of us who are are young adults right now are approaching big decisions and big forks in the road in life, right? Who might I marry? What career might I go into? Should I buy this house or that house or not buy a house at all? You make all these big decisions like the first decade and a half of your adulthood that affect the rest of your life, just like Jacob is here looking for a wife and it's going to affect the rest of his life. We enter into times like that. How do we make sure we do that well? Well, by making sure we don't live by the desire of our eyes and by deception like Jacob did. And instead, living on wisdom and on prayer. Let's apply that really particularly. What would that look like in in choosing a spouse? What would it look like to choose a spouse the way that Jacob did here? Well, we got a pretty good picture of it there in Jacob, right? How often does a young man see a young woman and say, all right, whatever the cost, I got to have her, right? As soon as, you know, just, sometimes that just happens and he's just driven to go after her. There's no pausing for prayer, 
There's no, no slowness in wisdom. There's just a drive that says she's got to be mine, and that's all. Sometimes when, when something desirable is set before us, we can forget wisdom, we can forget prayer, and we can resort to whatever deception we have to resort to to get what we want. And the Lord says here, no, no, don't do it the way Jacob did, suddenly seeing the one you want and doing whatever you have to to go after that. No, that actually sets you up for a selfish and manipulative marriage, doesn't it? All right, it, it, if the coming together was grounded in selfish desire and deception, what is the marriage union going to look like? Well, that's a recipe for five years later saying, why did I marry such a cruel person? How did our marriage become so manipulative and why are we always after each other and trying to use each other for what we want instead of loving each other? Well, to begin the union and to come together in the union in deception and in selfish desire just leads to those things fully blossomed in the marriage. Instead, what could it look like? Well, if you see somebody you like, that's a good thing. And a wife or a husband is a gift from God. It's not bad to see somebody and desire them, especially to go about it in a godly way. What's a godly way to do it? Well, prayer and wisdom like Abraham's servant did, right? So that means stopping right away and saying, God, I found someone that I like. Father, would you help me? I don't, I don't know what this person is like, but would you give me wisdom to pursue them well? And then honesty throughout the pursuit. And then a, a seeking of biblical wisdom, which would tell us to take counsel. So you call your mom and you call your dad and you call your friend and say, hey, why don't you come out with us while we go out this time? Just, just tell me what you think. What's your read on this person that I'm dating? As much wisdom as you can. Bathe the whole thing in prayer and in wisdom. In all your ways, acknowledging the Lord, letting him straighten your paths. Now there's a foundation for a marriage that's built on wisdom and on prayer. There's a foundation for a marriage that on their 10th anniversary says, can you believe we have prayed together every day for 10 years? There's a better way. So the point here being, acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Don't live by deception and desire. Live by wisdom and prayer. And see how that straightens out the path in life. Because the Lord's ways really do work. The Lord's ways really do bring benefit to our lives. Things can still go wrong, but the Lord's ways work. This is true for some of you who are in later stages of life, and there are big decisions that you've got to make, right? Should we change jobs and transfer over here? We'll have to move if we do it. Should we retire now or should we retire in 10 years? What should we do when we retire? How should we care for, for mom as she's starting to need care? And then later on, how do I care for my spouse as they are starting to need care? Big decisions that come in all phases of life. And these principles can help us every bit of the way. If we make those decisions just based on, I want this and I'm getting it, that's going to set us up for that whole thing blowing up in our face like it did for Jacob. If we go after the things we want using deception to get them, it's just going to set things up to blow up in our face. How do we do it instead? Cover the whole thing in prayer and seek God's wisdom every step of the way. I could go into more detail on that, but I think we should move on to what is really the main lesson of this story. And that is that God has come back to Jacob's life to make sure that everything he has done in the past comes back and bites him. And we got to ask, okay, what, what does that mean for us? 
What it means is it's a picture of what the book of Hebrews tells us. The Lord disciplines a son that he loves and chastises every son that he receives. Not our favorite verse to hear as God's children, is it? And why does the Lord do that? Well, we have a picture of it here, but the reason the Lord does that is to make his people holy, to build us up and to make us stronger. It makes more sense if we think of it in terms of, well, the analogy we have in the real world, real earthly fathers disciplining their children. Why do earthly fathers discipline their children? Well, the logic works like this. Sin leads to destruction if you continue in it long enough, right? So, so someone who chooses right or wrong is choosing not just a momentary decision, but a path to go down. And, and so a two-year-old who chooses to throw a fit and hit his sister, he's going down a path, right? And that's not just an aberration in his life. He's taken a, a step down a path now. 25 years later, what that looks like is a 27-year-old throwing a fit on his wife and hitting his wife. And, and then, 50 years after that, what that looks like is a 77-year-old going home to the Lord and answering for a life of anger and violence. Right? Sin is a path that leads to destruction. And so a loving father comes in when the kid is two and says, son, I know what this leads to. If you continue down this path of anger and violence, it will hurt. And so here's a little picture of the big pain that will come if you continue in this path. That's how you take a child and set them back on the right path. Okay, so, so the logic of discipline is if you continue down this path, it's really going to hurt. And so here's just a little preview of how that's going to feel. That can set a child back on the right path. Okay. Let's take that to the Lord's intervention in our lives. One of the great promises that God gives to us is that if we are his and we trust him today, he is not going to let us fall off that cliff of destruction, right? He is going to keep us all the way to the end. And one of the ways he does that is when we start to step off the path, he says, just like a loving father, my son, if you continue that direction, it's going to hurt and it's going to destroy you. Here's a small picture of that to nudge you back onto the right path. So, so what he does is he allows us to experience the natural consequences of our sin here on earth, even though we're his children, even though we're forgiven and have no fear of destruction in heaven and the end of all things, he still keeps us on the right path by giving us a picture of it through earthly consequences here, or at times with very strangely ironic consequences as is happening to Jacob here where there are so many echoes that you can see a clear link of, oh, this is happening because I did that. Why does the Lord do that? To nudge us back into the right path so that we can walk in holiness. 
Jacob has this fatherly benefit in his life now that God has appeared to him. He has received God's promises. He has responded in faith. He is living as a son now. And so the Lord says to him, I discipline every son I love. I chastise every son that I receive. That can help us to make more sense of some of the difficult things we might be experiencing as consequences for our own sin in the past. For instance, maybe, uh, maybe you get drunk one time, right? Faithful churchgoer for 20 years, you get drunk one time. And you drive, and you get a DUI the one time. And you're sitting there kicking yourself thinking, man, one time. And now I got a DUI on my record for the rest of my life. Actually, I think it only stays for seven years. Either way, I got a DUI on my record, right? Let's say that happens. Why would the Lord let that happen in your life? Well, the Lord ordained that police officer to find you, pull you over, come to the side of your car, say, I'm not letting you off for this. This is going on your record. And the Lord did that to show you and to say to you, my son, if you continue down this path, it's going to hurt worse than this. Right? Let me now, through this pain, bring you back onto the path of righteousness. And now for the rest of your life, you've got what feels like a mark on your driving record. But in reality, what it is is a constant reminder of that was a big deal, and I am going to walk in righteousness from now on. This could be true of nearly any earthly consequence for sin that lingers in your life. Some of us, Father's Day is a really hard day. I know men that Father's Day is a tough day because you look at the relationships you have with your kids that are grown now and you remember all the times you were harsh and angry with them and sometimes that bears its head in really difficult relationships with children down the road. I have a friend who I remember just praying with him one day at a church that I was a part of. And I said, how can I pray for him? And he said, I just want my son to talk to me again. The son wouldn't talk to him. They're restored and reconciled now. But so much pain like that can come up on a day like today. And you might look up to God and say, God, why is this like this in my life? Even after I've turned from it, I'm not harsh and I'm not angry anymore, but my children still won't talk to God. Why is it like this in my life? And his answer is, I discipline every son I love. I chastise every son that I receive. And now you have there what is a hard thing, but is a constant reminder. My anger, my harshness was a big deal. And I've got that to motivate me to walk in righteousness all the way to the end. And if I had to choose between a relationship with my son when he's an adult or walking in righteousness all the way to the end, well, I want both but I would take walking in righteousness all the way to the end. The Lord wants the same thing for your life and would even ordain hardships like that to come in in order to purify you, in order to make you more holy so that you can walk that straight path all the way to the end. He does that because he loves his children. The same way that an earthly father who loves his son and sees him doing something that will lead to destruction comes in and says, son, I love you. You can't do that. If you do, it's going to hurt real bad. Here's a little taste of that pain even now. So that's the point of what happens to Jacob there. 
The Lord wants us to look back at the ongoing sin in our life and say, that's a big deal. Just like we look back at Jacob's deception now and we say, oh wow, that's a big deal. And he wants us to look at our Father's hand of kind and loving discipline and revere him. Why would he want that? Well, for a number of reasons now. For some of us, it's because we can look, as I just said, at the things that have happened in our lives and make more sense out of them and know what's going on. For others of us, others of us are today either hiding or openly walking in an ongoing sin. And the Lord would say to us now, if this continues much longer, remember, I discipline every son I love. I chastise every son I receive. And when it comes, it is going to feel like it came upon Jacob that day. Oh, wow, it has come back upon me. If our hearts could be moved today to see whatever that secret ongoing sin is, or whatever that open ongoing sin is that we just aren't worrying about as a big deal. And if our hearts could be moved today to revere the kind but firm disciplining hand of God in our lives, that might be enough to move us even in this hour to say, I am putting that behind me. That's a big deal and I'm done with it. And that may be the very reason that the Lord would have this text be the one proclaimed to you on this Sunday morning. Maybe, maybe you are hiding something that you need the Lord to just prick your heart about this morning. And oh, would the Spirit move in you to turn from whatever secret sin that might be. So some of us, it's that. That's the right response for some of us. For others, it's looking back at those moral lessons and saying, you know what, when it comes to the big decisions in life, I'm living by selfish desire and even deception to get it. And the Lord would call you to turn from that and live instead by wisdom and by prayer. Some of you are approaching those years where you make big decisions. And here's Jacob's lesson for you. Live like Abraham's servant, not like Jacob. Live by wisdom and by prayer. So that's what the Lord would have to say to us this morning. What we're going to do now, we're going to move into a time of prayer and a message like this one can sometimes just hit the heart. I know some of us are saying, oh. And so we just need a moment of, of, of prayer to bring maybe heartbreak over something in your life to God. Or maybe heartbreak over ongoing sin in your life. Maybe this is the moment where you need to look to God and say, this is wrong and I will turn from it. And so I just want to give you space to do that. We're going to pray together and I'll give you a few moments in silence to bring that to God. Let's, let's bow together and bring it to him.